Hi, everyone. This is Joe Bianco, co-host of the Defining Moments podcast. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Anagret Hanawa. Anagret is a communication scientist and associate professor at the University of Lugano. She's also the founding director of the Center for the Advancement of Healthcare and Patient Safety and the author of more than 50 publications and five books on safe communication in healthcare settings. Two years ago, Anagret extended her study of patient safety from a completely new and unintended perspective. After suffering a massive stroke at age 39, she found herself incapacitated and at the mercy of the very medical system that she had worked so hard to improve. Her story is both terrifying and exhilarating and she's here with us today to take us on that journey. Anagret, it is an honor to have you with us today. Thank you, Joe. Thank you. So let's start with your Defining Moments article, which we will have links to on our Facebook page. In that recently published piece in Health Communication, you grapple with some very profound questions, such as, do we define our moments or do they define us? Now, we're going to return to that, to the answers to those questions later in the podcast. But before that, for readers who have not read your piece, can you recount the story of your stroke, the moment your life changed in less than a minute? Yes, it's uh, two years later, interesting to look back to because it was really just a, a flash in time. I played, it was on a Sunday morning and I was playing a board game with my son. And um, Kahala, his favorite game, which he hmm. still can't get out of the out of the closet today. Hmm. Um, so we're just playing that board game, and he kept winning, which is typical to him, hmm. although he's much younger than me. And uh, so after he won another game, I I leaned forward. I wanted to tickle him and cuddle him. And while I leaned forward, instead I went to the right side, and I I ended up on the floor. Um, in that moment, it was. Um, it was really just, as you said, less than a minute. It was really a fraction of time, but such an impactful minute that changed really everything inside me, around me, around our whole family's life. Um, that moment itself wasn't threatening. It wasn't hurtful to me. It was threatening to my son hmm. uh, who saw me there. But for myself, I've never felt that light before. Um, I didn't feel pain. I didn't feel worries or concerns. I didn't have much thinking going on in that moment. I just felt light, really, really light. But yet I still sensed auditory cues. So I heard this really deep breathing in the room. It felt as if like a buffalo was in the room. I keep saying that. I just <laughs> can't think of a better metaphor. And I, I, I just wanted to ask, you know, my son, what, what is that noise? And I couldn't say anything I couldn't formulate I couldn't move a mouth I didn't have a mouth to move <laughs> mm. so it was really odd and um it took me a while to realize and connect the dots where the scaredness of that facial expression in my son and that noise where that came from and me not being able to talk that it just assembled into hold on is that me could that be that that's me um so an odd thing happened it was almost as if my son's fearful expression and helplessness made me pull myself back into my body and uh, shove myself together and got up, literally <laughs> raised myself up from the floor, 
picked myself up from the floor and tried to act as if nothing had happened, looked at him and said, what was that noise? You know, try to say what was that noise, but still there was this really, really deep voice coming out of my lungs <laughs> that I, I, I couldn't, I would never be able to reach in normal life. It's such a depth of voice. I, I didn't know where that came from. And um, in retrospect, I think <laughs> now looking back at everything that happened since then, that must have been my deep inner voice I've never heard before and I've never allowed to speak before. And um, so, yeah, that voice unfolded just as sounds, just as nonverbal communication, as something that grounded me and my family into a new life. And um, so that was the less than a minute. And um, so, as I said, I, I picked myself up. I actually um, cooked lunch for us two hours later took care of the family and it wasn't until the later afternoon when I still had such an awkward deep voice that still wasn't normal where I thought this must have been more than just dizziness or you know kind of circulation problems because that voice just doesn't rhyme into that picture and um, so that's when the journey started that's the first time I went into the healthcare system I went to emergency um, and uh, from the moment I stepped through those doors into the ER, um, I was exposed to <laughs> what I had been studying my whole life. From the moment of the greeting, from the moment of um, healthcare staff joking that this is probably nothing, <laughs> to the moment where um, I left against medical advice that same night because they said, you know, it's really unlikely that anything serious had happened to me. and. Um, as I said, the physician even making jokes about me even being there until returning the next morning when four physicians were standing by the door <laughs> expecting me, me racing through the, the CT, the MRI, the EEG, all these different um, diagnostics for me to just end up walking into this room <laughs> of the neurologist. She's a female neurologist. And she had that setup that I never recommended where the desk separates the physician from the patient and the computer screen blocks the view. And uh, she looked over the screen and I hardly got a chance to sit down when she asked me, well, did they already tell you at radiology? And I said, tell me what? And uh, so she just called me next to her and showed me the screen and said, uh, you had a stroke and you have an aneurysm in your brain. Um, so that, that in that moment, um, my new life started for sure. <laughs> and so uh, I, I never got to get go back home. I um, was immediately sent into the stroke unit. Uh, I stayed there for four nights. Um, in those four days, um, I, I got severely hurt, um, not just by the healthcare system, by, by errors that were done in my care. Um, a line of things that happened, for example, after my second birth, so the birth of my son who witnessed the stroke. I have two sons, so the younger one witnessed the stroke. Um, I had um, very strong menstrual bleeding always, so they ended up treating that with a with a spiral, with a hormone spiral. And just as an exemplar of what happened in those four days, you know, I had called my OBGYN and just informed her that I was at the stroke unit, and she immediately reacted and said, you need to tell them that you have a spiral. They need to immediately remove that because there could be counteractive. Um, so they they did that at the clinic, and then while they did that, it took it. it <laughs> they didn't 
perform pain medications. I was there for over an hour with them trying to remove that spiral out of me. And they ended up poking a hole in my uterus. And I started bleeding a lot under anticoagulation therapy. So these are just hmm. examples of what happened ever since I stepped into the clinic. It wasn't the stroke um, that hurt me. Hmm. It was, and that got me so tired. And that got me um, to stay in the healthcare system until the following August, basically. That was in February, so it was until August. And um, so also witnessing handoff communications, so many handoffs that happened, even the first afternoon that I got there, where it was me stating very specifically and concretely what my symptoms had been. Um, among other things, I felt I described that there was like a 5% numbness in my right hand. That numbness had changed to tickling and then to pain and then to other hmm. descriptions and were never corrected in the records. And so I felt as if what I had studied and I had spent, you know, a decade on trying to improve with applied practice cases in nursing and in medicine and with a huge patient safety community. Now being in that system with a communication, a safe communication model that I had um, generated from data, hmm. <laughs> me as the founder of that mm -hmm. model, I was not able to bring that safety of communication into practice. So that was you know, sometimes people, well, not people, but the, and I will we'll probably get to this later, but the, the system treated me on sick leave, um, but I never worked harder. And uh, so it's the, the two year sick leave I took, I was actually in a, in a field study, um, a very, very intensive or intense field study where I had to test the applicability of my, my research, why it failed, why it was failing in practice. And I gained a lot from those experiences to see why. And uh, I think that's random questions that we'll probably get at later. <laughs> yeah, so there's a lot there in, in just that story alone. It's terrifying to think that when you returned to the hospital, you didn't have your son's face to help pull you back if anything else happened. It, he was the one that sort of grounded you. You were able to re-enter your body at home. Now you're faced, um, as you put it in one of your writings, you suddenly found yourself in your own book, in one of the dozens of patient safety cases I've studied. You've also noted in your research before this incident happened, when you were looking at patient deaths from treatment errors, you found that up to 80% of those deaths were due to poor communication. And then here you are now in the hospital, you're uh, a patient in the medical system, and you're hearing miscommunications about the symptoms that you reported. And those miscommunications are very significant in the context of a stroke, right? I mean, the difference. Right, not just yeah, yeah, not just that. There was another incident. So, so, so the story, just to, to briefly connect this to what I just said. Um, after the four days that I was at that initial clinic. Um, when I walked out, you know, I came, I was able to go back home with no diagnosis. Um, I was told that 30% of strokes remain undiagnosed, and I'm just one of those 30%, and that's that's normal. Um, so I walked home, um, smelled the bakery at the entrance, <laughs> like I've never smelled a bakery before, um, smelled the, the oxygen in the air. I just felt like um, I literally got, I, I didn't think I would walk out of that building again. 
So coming out there was the grandest gift I've ever experienced in my life. And uh, walked back home and my son had a piano lesson half an hour later. So I said, you know, let's walk there together. I want to walk by the lake to the music school with you. Um, that's about 500 meters walk from my house. It was not there anymore now. So it was about 500 meters walk. I had to, he held my hand, his little hand in mine. Walking there, we had to stop about 20 times on that walk there um, for me to sit down and catch breath. And I was just really, really weak, really weakened by what had happened in those four days and went to the piano lesson. I saw him, well, listened to him play for that 30 minute lesson, which was to me just incredible sounds to my ears that were different than the the beeping alarms that went off every five minutes next to my ear uh, in the clinic. Um, And when we walked home, I uh, wasn't feeling well. And by the time we got home, I laid on the couch. I got a fever and I got shivers and I just wasn't well at all. Um, then we, we um, my parents were there to help make dinner. And while we had dinner, my, my older son, he was asking for me to reach him the honey. And I said, there's no honey here. And he said, "His mom, it's right next to you. And the honey was standing next to my right hand and I couldn't see it. So it's like, you know, there's my, I had a, my, my vision to the right was just lost. And uh, so I, um, my mom, she used to be a nurse when she was young. So she said, you you need to go back to see a physician tomorrow. That's not right. And so I went to the, the eye doctor the next morning and she said, you know, that's a clear sign of, of a stroke, a, a recent stroke that that's probably new. So I had to, <laughs> she called the ambulance immediately. Um, I had 10 minutes to come back home. My, my kids weren't at home. They were uh, not home yet and uh, they gave me 10 minutes to pack my things and leave um, to a they brought me to an hospital that was two hours drive away um, I didn't get to say goodbye to my sons I didn't know where they were going to spend the nights I didn't know if and when I would ever come back um, after a second stroke so and if I would survive another hospital stay righteously so <laughs> and so it's the story continued right it's um uh, so that the ambulance transport at coming arriving at that big university hospital four times they unloaded me and loaded me back into the vehicle because they didn't bring me to the right place and um, so the communication there with the transport was so messed up that we lost so much time in me even getting it was dark by the time that I finally arrived where I was meant to go um so all these all these uh, traumatized really traumatizing things happened this is also where I encountered encountered other patients where I saw other people leave next to me and not surviving additional strokes and we're in that constant state of not knowing when does the next stroke take me away (laughs) you know you don't know you're just expecting that to happen so one of the things that happened there was um, an error in the making that I wasn't able to intervene with Um, just as an example as I said there were several things but they they were curious about my dizziness because it kept coming back. So one of the exams that they did is called it's a flipping table exam, where they put the EKG, the electro well the, the, the echocardiogram on your upper body, those suction things, <laughs> the diode. And uh, so they they basically start flipping you upside down very slowly and then they measure how your heart um, reacts and so forth. So they made an error. They put them on on high and they left them on me for over an hour. And uh, the physician 
was in the room with the nurse with me and she kept joking about the procedure and said this test is nonsense anyway it doesn't really it's not reliable it doesn't say anything and I was noticing that I was getting burned and um, I kept telling them you know I'm not well I'm not well and this doesn't feel right are you sure this is right and they just kept joking around having fun and I was there and they're basically saying well we're going to stop when you pass out because that's the purpose of the procedure is that when I pass out then they know <laughs> So you're lying on that board and you're, you know, the physician and nurse is there just waiting for you to suffer enough that you can't do this anymore. And while that happened, they didn't recognize the error that they had made by putting the electrodes in high. Um, so when they got me back into, and when I really couldn't take it anymore, they put me back into regular position and they removed them, uh, the, the, the sucking, what do we call them? The diode. I don't know how they call them in English. Um, they noticed there were blisters all over my brain. I mean, I literally had third degrees burns all over my body. And um, so this is another example of, I, 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 you know, not just being exposed to the, the typical kind of communication errors that we in research tend to focus on or standardize, but the complexity with which communication is almost omnipresently there and not being solidified, not being made safer, and then causing so many things that you just don't even, I mean, this issue, these incidents that happened there never showed up anywhere in the records. Hmm. You mentioned about the SBAR incident that you referred to um, in which you tried to correct that, right. that, mis that misunderstanding of your uh, symptoms. And then in this situation with the with the tilt table test, you were completely ignored. You were dismissed. It was as if your communication was irrelevant. Yes, yeah. And especially the, the SBAR part, yeah, that was a, a very good example too, where that was one of the first handoffs that they did at that first initial clinic. Where they're, they're follow, well, the, the way that communication is still conceptualized in medicine is this linear information transfer process. Right. And that has to work in a way that all the information gets from A to B. Communication is not understood as an interpersonal sense making process. Right. So so they had actually advanced a lot by including me in the conversation in a sense of me just being in the room. Right. So it was already a big advancement there that, that I was allowed in the room while they communicate. But so when they said all these incorrect things and they were visibly under time pressure because they had to get through the patients on time. You know, that I'll just briefly say how it happened since that wasn't read by the listeners. You know, the physician at some point raised her hand at me like a police officer stopping me from talking and said, hold your thoughts until we're through with this, because otherwise things get complicated and messed up. So she not only that she asked an acute stroke patient to keep things in her mind, which is just impossible to do, <laughs> like physiologically, after if you have a fresh stroke, you just can't. It's like forgetfulness is the worst thing, one of the worst things. But she didn't understand how communication transpires. So they, they and in the end, when I would have had, you know, the chance to say something, time was up. So the things never got, still today, I have the hospital reports and they <laughs> never got corrected. You, when you wrote about that particular situation, you said something very funny and true that their idea of 
uh, patient reform was allowing you to listen. Yes. Yes. That that was that was a concession that they thought was huge, and as a communication scientist and scholar, you probably saw that as the bare minimum. Well, it's when does communication take place if <laughs> you know if we don't have the sender and the receiver or multiple people in the same like finding that shared understanding together? We, I mean, we know that communication takes place between us, right? So if if we can contribute to that or participate in that, co-creating that, what happens in between us, then communication is not taking place, right? And I think that's the core message that that I learned not only from the studies before the stroke or from being exposed to the healthcare system during the stroke, but also as a grander lesson about humankind, is that what we have in that space between us is so incredibly rich. It is full of... Um, self-empowerment, of agency, of, you know, love, <laughs> of healing. Um, it's the, the grandest medicine we have is what we have between us, and it doesn't cost anything. We are born with it, and we leave with it. And that's, I think, one of the bare minimum things that we have are the grandest things that we have at our disposal. And unfortunately, we're moving away from more and more so with um, the way that we're steering digitization, for example, I'm not criticizing digitization, but the way that we use it, it's not helping us come together. And, um, you know, so I think also the, the pandemic that we're currently in is showing us those deficits grandly. You know, why are we not managing to come together and um, instead, you know, polarizing? And it's really interesting because I did this. Um, one of the things I did since my stroke was um, to invite diverse communication scientists on, on my homepage um, to speak with me about grand challenges that we're encountering, not only during COVID, but also in, in the near future, you know, with respect to all the different areas of communication science, because I just felt that we need to talk to each other <laughs> about those kind of things. And one of the people I spoke to was Benjamin Broom, um, and we spoke about um, peace building, so intractable conflicts and then peace building efforts, which he's been engaged in greatly his whole career. And one of the things that Benjamin told me was, you know, theoretically, so according to theory, when there's an external threat coming to us, you know, be it to, to Earth, so to say, from, from space, then the theory would say that we Earthlings would come together and join forces and defend ourselves against that threat. Um, so what's different about the virus? <laughs> you know, what's different about the stroke that happened? It's what, what we experienced as patients in those in the clinics that I was in, but also in the rehab clinic. Everything that defined each of us as people was taken from us. It's like, you know, I I talked to um Rich Frankel at some point of I think a year but after my after my stroke and first time I reconnected with colleagues, <laughs> you know, and I, I, I said to him, you know, Rich, how do I, what, what, who am I without, and I was there, my, my university was so far away. <laughs> my title was gone. All I was left, I didn't even have my clothing. I, I had nothing left that really belonged to me. I felt as if I was left in a life that's not there anymore. There was no, no space for me to continue living that life. It was taken from me, and yet I was still alive because I had pulled myself back for the sake of my son, you know, but that wasn't meant to happen. I felt 
a lot during this whole reintegration procedure too, that I'm trying to reestablish a life that's not really there anymore. Um, and yet it has to somehow function in a system that's, that doesn't want me there the way I am. Um, so I asked Rich that question, you know, who are we if all that is taken from me? And so he said something really interesting. He said, you know, I had just turned 70 and he said, you know, when I, on my birthday, I came home and, you know, my friends threw this surprise party for me and everybody welcomed me warmly and I felt so loved and I'm a father and I'm, you know, all those kind of things. And I said, well, but that's not who you are. That's titles. <laughs> that's just titles. And uh, so what I noticed emerging in those hospital stays, and especially, as I said, during rehab, where you really see the damage that other people have suffered from strokes too, you know, it's just different kind of consequences than what I had. There's only one thing left that makes us all equal. And that's our most fundamental cores of being human. Our fears, they're all the same. Our most basic fears our most basic needs. There's nothing decorative on us anymore, but what really, really connects us. And, you know, so the, the, the guy I was sharing that hospital room with when I, when I went to the university hospital where I was, as I said, far away from family and everything for a long time, um, he was a construction worker. You know, a, a person with no education, a person who was very basic, you know, a little bit aggressive against the nurses who kept missing the vein, mm. <laughs> spilling his blood all over. He had a he had a um, um, a blood clot in his um, in his head that was he didn't know when it was going to get loose and kill him. So he was just kind of you know very nervous about that too. But he had this extra insurance part where you get daily newspapers, uh, which we couldn't read because we're all you know hooked up on cables and cords and cables. So um, and then we we just you know. It, I don't know, we, we, we didn't meet on, on an intellectual basis, on a title basis, on a conference or anything alike, but we met on being human and our fears bonded us. We were there for each other, protecting each other. Um, we're the person to count on to push the button when we need help. And we laughed. We had, you know, it was the communication between us that brought us healing because we could laugh together and we actually ended up you know getting the nurse to get us freed up for a minute so we could fold paper planes out of those newspapers and we said we wanted to do a paper plane museum so people would come in and enjoy seeing them and um you know and then there's this this nurse that i praised as an angel still today um when i speak to nurses you know how how important their profession is not just because they're you know, not just because of their really professional role of what the tasks that they're supposed to be doing well, but just that, that humanity that they bring to the healthcare business and to the institution where this nurse came in and after, you know, two weeks of cold coffee, peppermint tea and dry bread, um, I just needed, you know, my blood pressure was always extremely low, contrary to what you would think with stroke patients. So mine was always way too low. So they, they said I should drink coffee <laughs> and, uh, so I said, you know, I would love after two weeks, I said, you know, if I could just have a cappuccino, I would die for a cappuccino. And uh, so she heard me say that and she snuck in at, when my neighbor was in a, in a diagnostic procedure. She snuck into me and she said, she whispered, okay, I'm going to free you. Just don't tell anybody. And she got me loose and she walked with me 
through those double doors that kept me shut up from normal life where I didn't think I would ever walk through again. And she got me through those double doors and she took me downstairs in the cafeteria and she bought me a cup of tea. And the lady there gave me this caramel cookie with it. <laughs> and, you know, I, we took it back upstairs and she I had to promise I'd never tell anybody because she could lose her job for this. But I, that cappuccino gave me um, joy. It gave me happiness. It gave me, it sounds weird, but almost like um, a push forward to think toward living again. <laughs> like it sounds weird, but it just gave me so much self-healing potential in that moment where it shoved me up almost like I went back into the skin with my son, you know. And um, what that nurse did, it was through communication more than any medication could have given me in that moment. And uh, I think, you know, that's just one of the, the lessons about communication I learned and practice during that time that no study could could ever reveal to us. Yeah, it strikes me as incredibly profound of her because I think it sounds like what you needed at that moment not only was a cappuccino, but for someone to break the rigid rules of an extremely rule-bound and somewhat dehumanizing system. Yes, yes. And hope. And hope. Hope, yeah. I think that's yeah what patients need in that moment is just a, a small sign of hope, you know, in that state of the constant fear. And, uh, and I'm just drawing parallels to the pandemic. <laughs> I think everybody can relate to that now. You know, two years ago it was different, but I think you know, what happened to me in that year prior to COVID is what happened to society. Right after that, it just repeated everything. Hi folks, this is Joe breaking in for just a second. We've been talking to Anagrad Hanawa, Associate Professor and Founding Director for the Center for the Advancement of Healthcare Quality and Patient Safety at the University of Lugano. We've been talking about her work on the critical role communication plays in ensuring patient safety in healthcare settings and how an unexpected stroke transformed her understanding of her own work. For your convenience, we've placed links to recently published articles in health communication on our Facebook page. Okay, back to the conversation. You've talked about this in your in your writing about the parallel. There are lessons to be learned from what you experienced over the past two years that we could apply to the pandemic. As you said earlier, we don't seem to be doing that. What are those lessons? Well, I wondered what was going on um, when the pandemic started. I I really felt kind of like in a in a in a second reality, like in a movie where, hey, my life from last year is repeating itself, and I'm watching it as a movie now with other actors in it, and that's the life I live in. The actors are all of a sudden everybody. It was really it was really kind of interesting um but then everything changed so everything because I was really hopeful when that happened I was like wow because I felt that I literally felt 
putting the pains aside, that what that's not what the stroke experience was was about. It was much more than that. It it um it revolutionized, transformed, choose whatever word you want, my entire life, every every particle of it into so much healthier and more fulfilled than before. It's almost like I, I finally arrived in life. I never lived life before. I never knew knew what life was until this happened. And you know, I was I feel so blessed that this happened to me at age 39 and not like it does to many on the deathbed. And uh, so I, I get that chance to live the rest of my life in a way that many others may not because it's actually on their deathbed when they realize it. So for me, this was really a grand thing. And I was, when COVID started, I was careful to say anything because I didn't want to, you know, say something that might turn out very bad. <laughs> but I was hopeful that what happened to me, what happened what happened to the world as a gift where we realize that we have so much more than we need and that if we lose everything, we're so much richer because we see what we really are and what we really have in us because it's it's all there. It's not monetary. It's just who we are. So I was hoping that, you know, at least a little bit hopeful that, that this would just repeat itself and, and we would all be so happy and come together and be so much healthier than these sickening structures that we've created for ourselves that just make it impossible and unsustainable for us to continue living in a healthy way. It's just so many bad things that we're doing <laughs> that's causing so much illness and compromises well-being in so many different aspects. So I was hoping for that to happen, but then things, as I said, went very differently. And I've pondered that question and you know, it's probably worth study <laughs> at some point to see to what extent, you know, because I didn't have external communications theorizing about my stroke. Like there was all these different messages coming in theorizing about COVID and um, different messages. You know, I mean, I had the physicians, you know, looking at the diagnostic tests and just kind of talking about likelihood and allowing me to rest with a 30% of uncertainty. We just can't diagnose it, you know? So that was, it was fine to talk in that gray zone because it's really all they had. Um, but with COVID, it was very different. Everybody had to know the truth and the facts and claim them as true and, and fact. And, and people avoided that gray zone. And, and so many different channels started people to polarize instead of turning inward. And, you know, so at the very beginning of the pandemic, I saw there was this like, I don't know if you saw that poem that they brought out in Italy where it's like literally a person wrote a poem about all of a sudden, you know, in that lockdown, people opened their windows and, you know, they they played the piano so their neighbors could enjoy their music. And then children were on the balcony entertaining lonely elderly next door and people served food so everybody would have food to eat from. And so this was kind of very much what I experienced our time in Iceland. Had to be like much more than than we're used to have it here, where this community, which is really the the essence of who we are as as humans, was being lived, and everything was enough. Everything was more than enough. And you know, in that moment with the construction worker, when we did that paper plane museum, I was so happy. <laughs> it was more than enough. You know, and it didn't matter what the context is surrounding us. 
It's that what happens between us and what we're given, we have it. We have that in between us that we can always seize and take as a resource for for that completion, for that, because it's when we come together in that peace and in that joy, there's nothing else we need. And um, so I think that's that's just uh, the difference that I've observed in, in the way that COVID unfolded over these past two, what, two years, too almost, <laughs> mm -hmm. is uh, really tremendous in comparison to how my path went. Yeah, I, I remember what you were referring to in Italy, the, those those beautiful, vibrant scenes of people crammed onto their balconies, um, yes. singing, dancing, cheering. They were able to take social distancing. And even if there was six feet, they used that space between them. They co-created yes. something. Um, yes. And they changed the wording. They, they changed it from physical distancing versus mm. social so they changed social distancing to physical distancing to make sure people yes. don't socially distance exactly we can still connect as humans as yes. long as we have a physical distance exactly but that you pointed out and i agree that that didn't sort of happen globally that wasn't a universal response to the pandemic instead um when faced with this sort of incredibly global and shared disruptive moment Instead, it revealed a lot of social divides. Yes, yes. And, you know, I'm currently um, now I just started on Monday. It's one of those things that I learned <laughs> to do when as ever since the stroke, you know, my, my, my body rules my life. And it's almost like the deal. <laughs> it's really harsh. The deal for continued life that I signed with my body, so to say, after that stroke was I follow my body. And if I don't, it's over. And I've, I've had three or four instances since then where, you know, I felt that physically that, that, you know, I deviated too much and now that's it. And so that's, it's a long story, many stories, many stories to tell, but now on, on Monday night, um, I had it just to exemplify <laughs> Monday night, I had a dream that, uh, I was speaking with one of those German virologists and um, I sat with him and he said, you know, why don't, why did you never do a study? And I just said, you know, I, I don't want to be another one of these experts out there. That's not me. You know, I'm in the background. I don't want to go up there and, you know, profile and say stuff that, that I can't give scientific evidence to. And that's just not my time. I'm, I just recovered from the stroke and, you know, I'm, I'm doing this mountain rescue project. I have so many data and I, I need to slow down and just slowly analyze those data first. And, and then he looked at me funny when I woke up, I opened my eyes and I saw a model in front of me. I got made breakfast for the kids, sent them off to school. And 30 minutes later, the model was on my computer. Um, that same afternoon, I said, you know, this is a national representative data collection to test the causal effects of governmental communication, traditional media communication, social media communication, and a personal communication on coping tactics, as well as on engagement and conspirational thinking, on vaccinations, on mental health outcomes, stress and depression, and so forth. Beautiful model. And then seeing how was that communication, you know, affecting those, those outcomes, and it did they, and above and beyond the stress that's caused naturally by the pandemic. So I had that all set up, and then I said, okay, well, if I want to get a, a national representative data collection, I need to have a survey company do that. So I, ha I had one that I used doing a medical error disclosure studies a few years back, and I, I emailed him. I called him up, actually. He was really excited to hear from me. I said, you know, can you give me 
um, an estimate of how much that would cost. And I was thinking maybe five or 6,000 francs or something. Switzerland is pretty small. So he said, I'll, I'll get it to you by Wednesday afternoon or evening. So I said, okay. So on Tuesday, I continued kind of playing with that model. I started writing items, um, finding, you know, measures, the typical thing. Uh, I figured I need to have them in three languages. And it just happened that on Tuesday, a bunch of the measures I wanted to use had in previous studies already been validated in Italian and in French. I emailed those people that one of them doesn't even work anymore. <laughs> and within less than 20 minutes, they had replied and sent me the validated instruments. So it's like one of those things where like, that doesn't happen <laughs> usually, you know, it's January. Um, on Wednesday, by 10 a.m., I received the quote, not in the evening, but by 10 a.m. And the cost was 25,000 francs. So I was like, oh, great. I'm back in that world now where, you know, it was a good idea. I need to stop because this is just going to cause me too much stress again. I'll get sick. I'm going back into my old life again. Um, so I called a, a close colleague in Bern. Um, she's a nurse. And I just called her and said, because we wanted to plan to do something. She's a really sweet person. Helped me a lot through the, through the illness. We talked a lot and so forth. And then she said, hey, that's such an important study. Let me support you with a research fund I have, and then we'll do it together. So she ended up paying 6,500 francs toward the project. And I said, wow, you know, that makes it easier. Maybe it's a, you know, so now I can call certain, you know, health insurance, this and that, and try to scramble together a puzzle pieces of the money that, I, that we need for this. So I had kind of, you know, pulled up the various foundations and, organizations and one of the things I felt was like you know maybe the health ministry could help and um, like so I called called up the the person um, that's responsible for for scientific assessments and wasn't there of course I, I stopped and I just continued and all of a sudden my phone rings and it's that person on the phone and um, speaking with me but yeah I just he just said you know can you spell your name and I spelled my name for him and he he just um said, you know, that study that you're doing there, that seems very important also for future pandemics. So, you know, they want to support me. So I had the money together within less than 24 hours. And um, so it's like when, so, so going back to your question, you know, needing studies to really understand why in COVID that happened, I'm sure <laughs> that communication, that the different kinds of communication that played into this, and it may be this, you know, the amount of content in terms of over-information, the clarity of it, the vagueness of it, the, the transparency of it, or the contextualization of it, like all these different competencies that we know, you know, them playing together that I had summarized in my safety model as well, must have had an influence on that polarization because it didn't happen that way under the same circumstances that in my microcosm of my <laughs> globe during the stroke with the other patients on my little planet and the stroke scenarios it didn't happen that way and so there must be a difference and I can only see the difference in the communication mm -hmm. so we need to measure it yeah that's a that's a beautiful story um, I'm also struck by how productive your dreams are <laughs> <laughs> most of most of us dream that you know maybe we arrived at work and left our shoes off, but you, <laughs> but you you dreamed of a model, not a, a very relevant model. You were able to secure funding. People came together, and this is during the pandemic, right? 
So maybe there are pockets of that. And maybe, maybe the person that you've become since the stroke is communicating in a way that invites that. I think it's, um, I must say the people I'm surrounded by, they are, they are my family, um, family on a much more profound level than biological association. I feel so blessed by the people I have met since my stroke. Um, they're people of diverse socioeconomic standing, um, people not related to my profession, um, people who are my home. Because they, you know, we we just smile, we exchange love, we we meet as people. You know, one of them is in a wheelchair. Um, she had an accident at age 38 that put her into being paralyzed in a wheelchair. And it's like speaking with people, not because of the titles or because of what they do, just because of who they are. And um, speaking a language that... Um, that is just such a different on such a different level because it's a language of truth, a very fundamental truth <laughs> about life and death, you know, and it's and it's the recognition on that deathbed that death is cruel. I went through the anger at death, I went through the anger at life, I went through the 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 injustice of death. I, I lost all belief in mercy and grace I, I on that in that moment when you know, there was a 12 year old um, boy next to me I had a stroke as well and didn't survive and it just makes you so angry it's like you know and then as we, we briefly talked about this Joe about the, the need of a chaplain in that moment mm. <laughs> I ended up speaking with as, as part of my video series because in that moment I was asking myself what in the world could a chaplain do to me right now I don't want to hear about God I don't want to hear about those this this human fiction that we created in our minds that's so far from the truth. The truth is, you know, Mother Earth doesn't feel a thing. It doesn't give a darn. It just takes your life just like it gives it. And nobody is being looked at while that happens. And that's true. It's true in retrospect of that moment of death. But it also opens a new door to life. Because once you realize that, once you've lived through that, you realize that the only thing that is a fact and truth in life is what emerges between us. That's what we humans have. That's what's given to us as humans. That's what, what the only thing we have is what emerges in between us. And that's the most powerful, most beautiful thing. If we just allow it to be there without putting our, what should I say? Our intellectual senses and judgmentalism and structures and systems that we've created onto that beauty because that just destroys it. So doing away with the scorecards and results and thinking mm -hmm. about all these metrics that we we chase in our personal lives, in our careers, and just noticing the space between us. Yeah, you're raising yeah, you're raising the scorecard. <laughs> <laughs> That's a story I shared with you as well that um yeah, I, I was when I was a competitive uh, athlete, and that's also how I got to the U.S. on a scholarship when I was young, studying there and everything, I, I learned, I played golf, and the saying was, no pictures on the scorecard, meaning that, you know, you just, doesn't matter how well you hit the ball, you just get in the hole and you win that, you win that prize. You don't have to play pretty, you have to play well. Um, so that's how I was socialized through sports, um, also through academics. It's kind of like, you know, you got your 
tenure track criteria on what you need to be doing to get promoted, right? I mean, that's like our whole life. Our whole life is structured that way. Um, it's structured for financial income. It's, you know, how many of us, and that's what I what I thought about a lot in these two years where my, my income was reduced substantially. I had to care for two children. It was just impossible. I mean, when, when I was in, in Iceland on Christmas, I, I was out of money. <laughs> I had, we had... <laughs> For Christmas, we had, um, you know, the Icelandic way, just a, a stick of wood, um, and we had handcrafted decorations around it as our Christmas tree. And, you know, my my sick leave money wasn't hadn't been paid out for bureaucratic problems that had happened, and you know, the, the bureaucratic problems didn't matter so much to the company and the people working there because it was just one of those things. But the person at the end of receiving it starves to death. And it matters a lot to that person because if you have to feed two children and you go to the bakery, try to buy bread, and then there's no money on the card. <laughs> so, you know, those experiences are, are life-threatening. And then you realize several times during those two years, also in the rehab clinic, um, we talked about miracles trembling, right? When, when you see those things outside of the clinic or outside of your illness that are happening to the world that have so much coldness, so much insanity objectively seen to them things that are fake i mean the, the money is just cheap paper <laughs> it used to be coins used to be of gold and silver now they're just cheap material and we we interpret so much value into that stuff which in turn causes so much illness so much stress so much suffering that it's, it's just a human brain construct it doesn't exist right so on that end of, of that new life that I was living for two years, I, I just saw that injustice. I felt it. I, I you know, I, I smiled at it. We had the most beautiful Christmas ever in our lives, <laughs> you know, although we had nothing um, because the school teacher, she came by and her, her husband is a fisherman. So she brought us a filet of fish and said, are you guys hungry? And, um, you know, so in return, we baked our own bread and stuff at that point because you just, you know, wait and know where you have to make everything yourself basically so uh you know so we just exchanged love and then they had this um you know we were there in the dark times of, of Iceland over Christmas time so it was very very dark always dark um with the exception of an hour if you're lucky that it wasn't snowing <laughs> so they had this tradition that on Saturdays they would meet in the sports hall of the school and have lunch together and um so it's it's the the community sense that is so incredibly powerful to mental health, you know, like especially with the darkness, like struggling with depression, all those things, that the solution is not medication. The solution is togetherness. And uh, so I think that's um, such an important, such an important recognition and a lesson that I wish we would have learned. And I'm sure we will eventually have to learn <laughs> sooner or later. We'll, we'll learn it. Yeah, it's a it's a beautiful sentiment. It's something that's right there in front of us that we all have access to, right? If we notice it, right? Well, I'd like to wrap up today um, by returning to your defining moments article, which again will be posted on on Facebook and is a it's just a wonderful read. I had difficulty choosing among a humongous list of things I wanted to quote, um, but I encourage our listeners to read the article themselves because it's a treasure. But in that article, you 
asked yourself about the stroke, whether the stroke defined you or you defined the stroke, are you changed because of the stroke or as a result of it, you ultimately start questioning what is a defining moment? Who defines it? How does that happen? Do we have the capacity to do that? And I think having heard your journey now, the solutions that you came up with will make perfect sense. And I'd like to I'd like to just end by reading some of the beautiful observations you made, a couple of excerpts. You wrote, we have the power to transform moments that define us into moments that we define ourselves. And it's not the moments themselves, but the connecting lines in between that make them defining. In those intervals, I learned about the enormous agency that rests inside each of us to determine how we live our life and about the self-empowerment we can activate to get hold of our lives again in sickness and in health. Anna Gretanawa, thank you for sharing your story with us today. Thank you, Joe. It was my pleasure. Thanks for joining Anagrat Hanawa and I for this episode of the Defining Moments podcast. Defining Moments is produced by WOUB Public Media and the Barbara Gerald's Institute for Storytelling and Social Impact. Lynn Harder is the producer and Adam Rich is our audio engineer. You can subscribe to the Defining Moments at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or the NPR Podcast Directory. Please follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at DM Podcast W-O-U-B. On our Facebook page, we provide links to some of Annegret's recent articles as well as her website. We hope that you'll take the time to rate and review this podcast on Apple Podcasts. <laughs>